I want you to open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. <coughs> Thank you, Holland. Verse uh, 20. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. We are finishing up our series today that we've been calling Far More. The series is based off um, that verse, Ephesians 3.20, where Paul, the Apostle Paul, makes um, this statement about the power of God. Let's read this together. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. And one of the things that we have hoped for you through this series is that by the end of today, by the end of this series, that you would have this verse memorized. And not only that you would have this verse memorized, but that this verse would truly become a part of who you are. The the psalmist says this, he says, God, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that's been my prayer for you, that this truth would be hidden in your heart, that our God is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power that's at work in you. Now we're going to end the series today by looking at what Paul says immediately after this amazing truth about the power of God. Let me read this to you. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work in us. Watch what he says in verse 21. He says, to him be the glory in the church. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I love that verse. Amen. I love that verse. It's it's like this truth about the power of God hits Paul's heart. The reality of the power of God hits Paul's heart and it just gets all over him. And he starts to worship. He starts to worship. He, uh, He makes this statement about just how powerful God is. And then he says, to him be the glory. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, church, why does Ephesians 3.20 cause Paul to worship in Ephesians 3.21? Why does Ephesians 3.20 cause Paul to worship in Ephesians 3.21? And this is the answer. Because when the reality of who God is and when the reality of what God has done hits your heart, it will always produce worship. When the reality of who he is and when the reality of what he has done for you, when it hits your heart, it will always, always, always produce worship. And guys, I worry about people. I worry about people that are churchgoers but they are not worshipers because there is a very big difference between the two. People that are churchgoers, but they're not worshipers. And I'm not just talking about singing. I'm talking about when, when something about the Lord hits your heart and the only appropriate response you can think of is worship. And if that never happens in your life, If that never happens in your life where you're in your time with the Lord or or you're praying to him or you're just doing life and something, the reality of who he is and what he's done kind of hits on you. And the only thing you can think to do is is to say something to the effect, well, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If that never happens, something's wrong. 
Because when the reality of who he is and what he has done hits your heart, the response will be worship every single time. And so here's the question that I have for you, and it's in light of this truth that we've been learning for the last five weeks, that our God is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think of according to the power at work in us. That not only is he able to do that, but he has done that in our midst. And we believe he's going to continue to do that in our midst. In light of that truth, in light of that reality, what is your response of worship going to be? What is your response of worship going to be? What is your offering of worship going to be? That's what we're looking at today. And from the very beginning of this series, I told you that unashamedly we're going to ask you, in light of all that God has done in our midst over the last 12 years, and all we're asking him to do, that we're going to unashamedly ask you for two responses, for two specific responses in light of Ephesians 3.20. Number one, we've been asking you for weeks to take a step of involvement in the mission of God through our church. We've been asking you to take a step of involvement towards the mission of God, of helping fulfill the mission of God through the church of Jesus Christ. Wherever you're at, whether you're a visitor, whether you've been here forever, we want you to take one step. And so far, uh, uh, as of Friday, we've had 37% of you respond. 37% of you have gone online and said, hey, I'm in, I'm raising my hand, I want to take a step, I'm here, I want to move to here because I believe that God wants to do far more through me. 37% of you, and that's awesome. That's over a third of our church. Um, have said, I'm in, I want to take a step in involvement. And that's amazing. That is really, really cool that a third of our church is doing that. But here's the thing. I'd like to see that number jump dramatically in the next couple days, somewhere up around 100% or so. Because here's the thing. If this is true, if this is really true, if this is not just some cool sermon series we're doing, but if this is really true, that God is able to do far more than we can ask or think. If that's true, church, we need to start asking. And we need to start thinking. And we need to start raising our hand and say, God, I want to be used by you powerfully for his glory. And so if you haven't done that, your campus pastor is going to come up. They're going to share with you how to do that after the service. But there's something else that I want to share with you. The next step that we've talked about, I share with you in the very first sermon of this series uh, that we're going to ask of you. And that is unashamedly today, I'm going to ask you to take a step in your investment of the mission of God through the Austin Stone, and I'm going to ask you to do it financially. Unashamedly, I ask that. And before I go any farther into this sermon, I want to, I want to share some things with you from my heart, and that's this, that I used to be, I used to be really, for lack of better words, I debated this all week, for lack of better words, I used to be really scared to preach on money. I used to be scared to do it. And the reason that I've been for years scared to preach on money is because of a three-week series I did on finances back in the summer of 2008. And I preached for three weeks, and um, all I pretty much did, you can go back and listen to it, all I pretty much did is just kind of walk through Scripture on some of the teaching, which is a lot, by the way, on what Jesus and what the Lord had to say about money. I didn't browbeat people. I didn't stand up and say, hey, You need to tithe to our church. I just taught from the Bible about what God had to say about money. And the the volume, the amount of angry and mean-spirited emails I got was mind-blowing. 
It was mind-blowing. I mean, you would have thought I stood up in this pulpit and said, I like Hitler or something. It blew my mind. And what's, what's crazy is that I've taught on some, some pretty controversial topics before from this pulpit. I've taught on Calvinism. I've taught on divorce. I've taught on hell. I've taught on homosexuality. And those topics just simply do not compare to the volume of response I got <coughs> negatively from this sermon series. And as a young pastor, back in 2008, because I was young then, I'm old now, but I was young then, and as a young pastor, that shook me up. It shook me up, and, and, um, and I get it. Like, I get it. I mean, I'm a pastor, but I'm also a human, and I get it. I understand that, that almost everybody here has some sort of story that they could tell of some pastor or some church. And, and I didn't come up with that. Jesus came up with that. He said that most people, no, he said all people <laughs> serve either God or money. It's fascinating. He doesn't say you're either going to serve God or Satan. He didn't say you're going to serve God or vacation. He didn't say God or sex. He says you're going to serve God or money. And in light of that, I believe it, there's so many of us that get up every day of our lives and we pursue and we serve and we worship money. And so when a pastor stands up in a pulpit, whether, he's, uh, whether the church is a church of integrity or not, when a pastor stands in the pulpit and, 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 and shares what the scripture has to say about money, that you know, things like you shouldn't pursue it first in your life or you shouldn't store it up you know, things that Jesus, crazy stuff that Jesus said, or, or that you shouldn't let it own your heart, or that you should set aside a portion of it for the expansion of the kingdom of God, or, or that you should support the church, you should meet the needs of the saints. When a pastor stands up and says things like that from the pulpit, people just flip out. Why? Because money is their God, and people don't like it when you ask them to let go of their God, all right? And because of that response, I've always been kind of hesitant to talk about it, scared maybe even. But here's what I want to share with you today is that God's really changed my heart on this. He's really changed my heart on this. He's done a work in my life where I'm not really afraid anymore. There, there's some things I've seen in the scripture and there's some revelations God has given me about kind of the nature of us, the church and the role he's called us to and what we're doing that has absolutely taken away my fear from standing here in this pulpit and looking you in the eye and calling you to give generously from the money that God gave you to the mission of God through the church of Jesus Christ. And so I'm just going to finish this sermon today. I'm going to give you three quick um, reasons why I, as a pastor, have to call you to financial generosity. All right? Two are biblical, one's just from my heart. Here's the first one. Number one, the Bible teaches us, and I've recently just seen this. It's crystal clear. I've never seen it before, but it's there. The Bible teaches us that you cannot separate kingdom impact from financial generosity. You cannot separate kingdom impact from financial generosity. In other words, you can't say, I'm going to live on mission for God and not include that or your finances in that. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Turn to your Bible. If you don't have it, we'll have them on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Here's the context. 
And by the way, this is chapter 8 and 9. Spends two chapters talking about it. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth was a wealthy church. They were a wealthy church. And the re- one of the reasons we see this in verse, er, chapter 8 and 9, that he's writing them. Everybody look at me here. Everybody look at me. I'm going to catch this. He's writing to them in, in chapters 8 and 9 because they have stopped giving. They're a wealthy congregation and they have stopped being generous. They were being incredibly self-centered with their finances. And the church's needs weren't being met. Um, the needs of other Christians around the known world at the time were not being met. Missions to, to peoples who had not heard the gospel yet were not being funded. And so what Paul does, check this out, he writes them a letter and in chapters 8 and 9, he's telling them about this really, really poor church in Macedonia. And he shares with them about how this really, really poor church in Macedonia is incredibly financially generous. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, he's writing to this rich church in Corinth who had quit giving. And he writes to them and he says, We want you to know, brothers, speaking to these uh, rich Corinthian Christians. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. And that's a key phrase. I'm going to go back to it in a second. He says, for in a severe test of affliction, he's telling them about the church in Macedonia and what's going on there. He says that for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means. They gave according to their means. And as I can testify, Paul says, and beyond their means, to their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And so a couple things there I want you to see out of those scriptures. Number one is this church in Macedonia. This church in Macedonia, this is a picture of radical generosity radical generosity it is a radically generous church and we use the word radical here for this reason this church in macedonia was not giving out of their wealth they were not giving out of their wealth they weren't throwing in some pocket change they weren't throwing in a few dollars that they didn't really have a need for they weren't giving in a way that wasn't affecting them financially the scripture says that they were giving out of their poverty and not only were they giving out of their poverty, but, but Paul says, hey, rich church in Corinth, who is it given? I want you to know that these people were giving above their means. They weren't spending above their means like Americans do. They were giving above their means and they were doing it out of their poverty. Okay, this is a radically generous church. And when you think about that, that's insane. That's insane that you got this rich church that's not doing anything and you got this really, really poor church going through this incredible affliction and these people are given above their means. They're begging to be a part of giving generously to the kingdom of God and that's insane. That makes no sense whatsoever until you look carefully at the first verse there. So look carefully at verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, because Paul tells us why this is happening in their church. Why in the church in Macedonia are they so generous? Out of their poverty, he says it in verse 1. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given. 
among the churches of Macedonia. Everybody check this out. What Paul just said was this church was radically generous because the grace of God enabled them to be radically generous. This, this, this picture of radical generosity, listen, this picture of radical generosity was evidence. It was proof of the grace of God at work in their lives. Church, Austin Stone, you, you know one of the ways you can know for sure that God has your heart? You, you wanna know, one, of the, one of the ways you can know that God is at work in your heart? Look at your money. Look at your money. Look at where you're spending your money. Because that's what Jesus meant. That's what Jesus meant when he said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. Where your treasure is, follow the trail of where your treasure is going, and you can know that is where your heart is going to be. All right? You want to know where your heart is today? Look at your money. That's not my words. Those are the words of Jesus. And so we see in the scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that we know that the church in Macedonia, the people of the church of Macedonia, their heart was with Jesus. Their heart was with the church. Their heart was with the mission of God, so much so that they're begging Paul, please let us be a part of what Jesus is doing. One of the evidences of the grace of God in your life is financial generosity. That's the first thing I want you to see from this, those scriptures. Second thing I want you to see is this, is that Paul spends the rest of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9 talking about this right here. All of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9, two chapters in the Bible begging this rich church in Corinth to be generous. In chapter 9, he tells them, I don't want you to give out a compulsion he says, I know I've been telling you all this about these poor people. I don't want you to feel, and how they're giving. Don't, feel, don't give because you feel guilty. Don't give out a compulsion. And then he drops the verse that most of us have heard before. He says, I don't want you to give out a compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. And we've heard that so often, we breeze past that. But think about it for a second. The scripture said, God loves a cheerful giver. When God sees somebody, a believer, being generous financially, he is speaking about money here. If you don't believe me, go study it. He's speaking about money here. He says when God sees somebody being financially generous, the scripture says God looks at that and God loves it. He loves it. He goes on there and he says, hey, don't worry about God because he knew the rich people were going to start doing the math. Am I going to have enough money to be generous? And he says in chapter 9, he says, don't worry about how, God, how you're going to get this money. God's going to provide for you the money, not so that you can spend more on yourselves. He's going to provide this money for you so that you can be generous. And then he ends chapter 9. He ends chapter 9 by, by basically telling this. He goes, and by the way, you need to understand something. Your financial generosity is going to result in God being glorified. More people are going to get saved. That's what he says. Go look it up more people are going to know Jesus because of your financial generosity. And I've, I've just realized as a pastor, I, I've, I have to be faithful. I, have, I don't know whether I'm scared or not. I have to be faithful to call you to give generously to the mission of God through the church. One, because the Holy Spirit inspired word of God spent two chapters 
Two chapters of the Bible, not two verses, two chapters of the Bible are dedicated to one church, one stingy rich church getting in the fight financially. Two, the Bible just said financial generosity is evidence that God's at work in your heart, that God has your heart. I want God to have your heart. And three, the Bible says that you're giving result in God being glorified, and I want God to be glorified among us. And listen, guys, if that's just kind of not where you're at, and you're doing the church thing, and you're doing the Christianity thing, but your finances have no part of that whatsoever, I'm telling you, if the Apostle Paul were alive today, he would write you a letter. He would write you a letter, a long one. And in it, he would say, hey, listen, I want you to know you're kind of missing this thing because you can't separate your wallet from your walk with Jesus. You can't do it, okay? Second way, God has moved my heart. To, to, God has taken away the fear for me to stand in a pulpit and call you to financial generosity, to the mission of God through the church. is not so much a biblical, and I think it is, but it's really just more from my heart, and it's this. It's, it's really kind of the way that my understanding and view of the local church has grown over the last few years. One of the things that, I, I, I mean, if I've heard this once, I've heard it a hundred times, and it's always, it's always kind of broken my heart when I've, I've heard it, but it wasn't really till I've kind of matured in my understanding of the church that I kind of get why it bothers me so much. But I hear this, and I've heard it a lot. It's, it's Matt, I, I want to give. I want to give to Jesus. I want to give to the expansion of the kingdom of God, but I, I, I struggle to give to the church. People say, I want to give, Jesus want to give to missions. I hear that a lot. I want to give to missions, but I, but I don't necessarily want to give to the church. And I'm going to say something, and be a lot of you don't like it, and that's okay, but I, I, I just want you to know that I'm standing before Jesus now. I'm going, to, I'm going to give an account for the words that are about to come out of my mouth. And I say it without reservation. And I say what I'm about to say, I believe with all of my heart, or I would not say it, trust me. I, I fear Jesus a lot more than I fear you. But I'm going to say something that I believe with all my heart that when you give to the Austin Stone Community Church, you are giving to missions. I believe that with all my heart. Let me show you what I'm talking about and why I say that. I want to show you a slide um, that our team put together and, and don't get caught up in all this. I, I, want, you to, I want you to look at a, at a couple of things here. Um, a couple of years ago, God gave us a vision to send 100 people from our church to the nations, specifically to unreached people groups. And as of the making of this slide, 96 long-term missionaries had signed up. And, and, and as of August last month, that 96 right there in the middle uh, is now 100. We just sent our 100th person to the nations. That's right. You clap right there. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you why that's really cool. Um, and why I can stand here without reservation, we're just going to keep this up for a second, and I can say that that is God doing far more abundantly than anything we could ask or think of. Um, one, because that 96, the 100th is gone, but look at the number underneath that, 165 are, have signed up and are preparing to go. And so we had this crazy idea 
God, could you do this radical thing in our church? Could you send, and we thought some stupid, crazy number. God, would you send a hundred people from our church to unreached people groups? And God said, too small, 265 are going to go from your church. And that's cool. And some of y'all are like, well, this is a really big church. 265, that's nothing. I had a thousand people going to my church growing up in Athens, one. We, We had one missionary. Extrapolate that out to 8,000 people that come to the Austin Stone, that would be eight. And you start looking at, at other churches around the country, and that's about right. You got about eight, you got about 20, maybe. And you realize something, that God is doing something incredibly, incredibly, incredibly unique. God, for I don't even know why, has poured out his grace on us. And not through our effort, I'm telling you, through the grace of God, he is moving in such a way that we can't attribute to anything other than him. And I can just kind of stop right there and say, and kind of that could be my illustration, but it's really not the point I'm trying to get at. The point I'm trying to get at is this. How did those 265 people become missionaries? Have you ever thought about that? 265 people that raised their hand and going, I am going to an unreached people group somewhere in a crazy place where we just discovered might cost me my life. How do those 265 missionaries become missionaries? Do they just walk through those doors back there waving their arms, go, hey, it's first time today, I want to talk to somebody about going to Afghanistan. Do you think that's their story? You think that's where the journey begins for, for the 265 people? It's not. I wanna, I'm going to tell you a couple of stories here. The first is a guy named Eric. Let's show Eric's picture. Eric's guy on the right. And um, Eric is one of the 165 people that have signed up and are currently being trained to go to the field. Let me tell you just a little bit about Eric. Eric, um, for a huge portion of his life, was a drug addict. And, um, and spent most of his life kind of going in and out of prison. And recently, uh, in his last stint in prison, he, he got saved. He trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. He was tired of his life, the way it was going, and he trusted in Christ as the Lord and Savior. Jesus radically changed his life. When he got out, he heard about this church, had young people in it called the Austin Stone. So he starts coming, sits in one of these chairs out there. He listened to sermons. Started growing in his, in his faith in the Lord. He came one Sunday and this tall, lanky guy named Andy Campman, our missions pastor, was preaching on going to the nations. And God began to stir in his heart. And so he began to investigate and he went and joined one of our missional community groups that supports one of our goers that's in one of those countries that I just showed you. And so he spends this time, he's getting trained, he's getting discipled in this missional community. Last summer, he went on a mission trip, one of our short-term mission trips through the stone to India. And, and now he told us, he, he wrote us an email, he said, now the plan is that I am going to go, I'm going to be one of the goers, I'm going to go to one of those nations, and I'm going to go as soon as I get off probation. I love that. When I get off probation, I'm going. And so here's the thing I I want you to understand. Eric did not walk in those doors back there wanting and desiring and feeling called to go to some crazy place to tell people about Jesus. Eric walked in the doors as a young man that just got out of jail. 
and through, through sermons and through missional community groups and short-term mission trips and through, and through the community of the people of God and through the church, God raised him up and God developed him and, and God discipled him and, and trained him and now he's going to leave and he's going to change the world. Church, missionaries are not born. Missionaries are developed. And, and missionaries are developed through the design of God. It's meant to be through the church. Eric didn't walk in our doors as a missionary, but by the grace of God, Eric is walking out our doors as a missionary. When you give to the Austin Stone, you are giving to missions. I'll tell you another story. This next, uh, this next family is the Chandlers. Is the Chandlers. Um, I love those folks. They, um, they left stable jobs, comfortable home, and they're spending two years in a country in the Middle East where the population is over 99% Muslim. And I'm not going to tell you where they are because it's dangerous to tell you where they are. And when we put this on the, um, the video webcast, we're going to blow out their, blow, uh, blur out their faces. And you think, well, that's extreme. Well, let me just remind you of a guy named Ronnie Smith. It's not extreme. And so um, here's the thing uh, about the Chandlers who is serving in this country that's over 99% Muslim is that they're seeing a lot of fruit. They're seeing a lot of fruit. They have over 40 people. They're meeting in their houses talking about Jesus. As a matter of fact, one of the things that the Chandlers are doing is that they have um, taken this group of 40 and that they have done the, the video cast of our Far More series with them every week. They've been watching it every week, which I think is pretty cool. And as a matter of fact, I'd like to just stop right now and give a shout out to our Austin Stone campus in the, in the Middle East. Can y'all give them a hand? So, we love you guys. We're proud of you guys. But here's the thing. The Chandlers didn't walk in that door saying, hey, we feel called to leave the United States and everything we have here and go to a crazy place and tell people about Jesus. And they were long-term partners of the stone. They heard sermons. They went to missional communities. They attended development classes. Their kids were in our student ministries. They served, and God slowly but surely raised them up and called them, and they are changing the world. Missionaries are not born they are developed, and it's God's design to develop them in the church. And that's why I unashamedly say to you, when you give to the church, you are given to missions. And guys, I can stand up here and I can tell you 265 churches or stories just like that. Of normal, everyday people that walked in the doors one day, but they left and they're going all over the world in the name of Christ. God has changed my heart. He's changed my heart. I don't mind standing up. It's my pleasure, my honor to stand up and say, hey, unashamedly, you give to this church, you're giving to missions. Here's the last reason. Here's the last reason that God has taken away my fear in calling you to give and to give generously to the mission of God through the church. And this is going to be really simple, but I want you to hear it. You know why I'm not afraid anymore to stand up and say, hey, I want you to give generously to the expansion of the kingdom. And here's the answer. Three words. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. Revelation 5, 7. Revelation 5, 7. Let me just read this to you. This is, uh, 
This is in heaven. Let me give you a glimpse of what we're going to be saying in heaven. It says, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding the harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then John said, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Did y'all catch that? The scripture just said that Jesus is worthy to receive power and wisdom and might and honor and wealth. The living creatures, the elders, the saints, thousands upon thousands upon thousands and myriads and myriads of angels shouting at the top of their lungs, Jesus, you are worthy to receive wealth. Notice, church, that they did not say, Jesus, you need our wealth. They said, Jesus, you are worthy of our wealth. We don't give to Jesus because he needs our money. We give to Jesus because he is worthy of our money. And church, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, when you get to heaven... When you get to heaven, Jesus, you are worthy of our wealth. That is what you are going to be saying. You're going to be standing around that throne. Those words are going to come out of your mouth. When you go to heaven, that's what you're going to say. And the reason you're going to say it when you get to heaven is because when you get to heaven, you are going to believe it. And you're going to believe it because you're going to see Jesus face to face. And when you see Jesus face to face, you're going to know. You're going to know in that moment. He's worthy of my wealth. I don't know about you, but I don't want that day, the day I see Jesus face to face, to be the day that I come to the realization for the first time that he is worthy of my wealth. I want to go to heaven and I want to see Jesus face to face. And I want to join that chorus knowing I've been saying that my whole life. I want to end today and I want to show you something here. And I want to show you a picture of of a man and his wife that I'm 100% convinced are going to be around that throne shouting at the top of their lungs, Jesus is worthy to receive wealth.
And I'm confident that they'll be around the throne saying that because they're saying it right now. All right, let's watch this. As I look at my at our journey, Judy and I's journey over the years as, as Christians, as believers, uh, we, I always felt that we were pretty generous. Even when we think we're generous, we I think we, we do give up. I, we have given out of our abundance, and, and as we process this, it's a real challenge for us. My name is Al Lopez, and uh, I've been coming to the Stones since the fall of 2007. Uh, married to Judy, great wife, perfect wife, Proverbs 31 wife, uh, and I've got eight grandkids. Uh, proud, proud dad. And when we first started coming to the Stone, the second Sunday we were there, um, uh, the sermon on impure, uh, impure worship. We were on Amos 5 when God's talking about how he despises the people's feasts and how he, the, the music and worship is noise to his ears uh, because they weren't living for, for, uh, for the gospel. Uh, they were trampling the poor. That same Sunday is the Sunday that Judy and I decided to move into St. John. And uh, that led to, that was our first vision series at, at, uh, at the Stone. And that led to, uh, kind of a, a bigger commitment on our part and uh, I was still dwarfed by what, what God enabled us and convicted us to do in, in that vision series. And now obviously he's not done with us and as we go through, through this current process, we're processing it and, and sometimes with tension because it's, 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 a hard, it's a hard conversation. I think sometimes we talk about stewardship uh, as a way to mask uh, our idol of comfort and security. And one of the things that, is, that, that I've really been, that's been hanging in my heart is, is, is a scripture out of, uh, out of Mark, Mark 12, where Jesus is talking and he says, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. <clears throat> and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed, uh, contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And, and that is really convicting in terms of, uh, because it's easy, it was easy for us to do what we've done. And yeah, you could say we sacrificed the nice house in the suburbs. We sacrificed vacations we could be taking. We sacrificed having the fancier car. But to me, maybe because of where I grew up, those really weren't sacrifices. It was out of the bountiful resources and blessings that, that God has allowed us to, to, to steward for him that we've been able to, to give it out. That Judy and I, fortunately, have been wired pretty pretty conservatively with our finances and I think even though even though we went through all those years where where we were building that resource base we never used it and I consciously 
wasn't making a decision that I was stewarding it for the kingdom. It was just that I was just frugal in that way. And now as I look back and process that, I know what God was doing was he was building that, that resource, uh, knowing that someday he was going to convict me about it. And now we're, we're investing in it more. Obviously, I'm older, and, uh, and I feel like God's got less time uh, with me and Judy to do whatever he's going to do through us. Uh, but he's not done with us, and uh, we have to be in the fight. I would hate for, for, uh, for Jesus to come back tonight, and you're, we're sitting there with this, with this big bank account. I know he would say, what were you waiting for? Well, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm praying that that, uh, that that small increment, that the Lord will multiply it and uh, across the congregation and, and use it to uh, the things we've been talking about. I have eight grandkids, and I would love nothing more than for everybody's grandkids that are, that are my grandkids' ages are going to have the, the ability to, to hear about the Lord and hear about the Lord like, like Judy teaches it so that they, they can become a next generation. I, I, I was always struck by by uh, when we would sing Hosanna and that verse about, I see a generation. <clears throat> when we sing that song, Hosanna, <clears throat> and we sing about, I see a generation rising up to take their place. I've always felt that way about the stone, about you guys. And, uh, and now I feel it again about the younger kids that are coming through. And I, my prayer is that, that, uh, that, that they will be able to touch many lives and, and the, the legacy that they're going to leave is going to be uh, awesome. And, and Jesus will come back sooner because everybody will hear about him. I want to end this series not with my words, but with the words of Scripture. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than anything we can ask or think according to the power that is at work in us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do your thing. You break down idols. break down strongholds. Let us go of our, help us to let go of our idolatry of security, comfort, power. 
And let's begin, Father, through the power of the Spirit to take a posture now that we're going to take in glory. When the saints are around your throne, setting our earthly crowns at your feet, say, you are worthy. Jesus, you're worthy to receive honor and wisdom and power and glory and wealth. Let that be true of us then. But Lord, we ask and need your power that it would be true of us now. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, church.